So that brings us to chapter 27, verse 1. Now we move out into the courtyard. So here we have the tabernacle, and then the courtyard is this whole place. So the next place he's going to go to is the altar. So he's skipping around, but remember the reason he's skipping around is because he's he's going from the most holy, the Ark of the Covenant, to the least holy, out in the courtyard, and mentioning all the items that refer to God's character. These are all communicating something about his character. Then once again, he'll start all over and cover everything else that's left over because these are the ways that we gain access to him. So we don't gain access to him through the Ark of the Covenant. That communicates his character. We don't gain access to him through the veil. That communicates his character. We don't gain access to him through the table, showbread, and lampstand. That's his character. Now we come to the altar. And the altar is his character and, interestingly, a way to gain access to him. So the altar was the first thing that you would hit when you came to the gate. Now remember, the only way you can go through the gate is if you have an animal sacrifice and you're part of the Abrahamic covenant. Those are the two criterias. So the bronze altar looks like this. It is a square um, item that has these horns on each corner, and it's bronze. Now, remember, bronze is the color, the symbol of judgment. Okay, so the idea is you're bringing your animal to this, and you're laying the animal in this grate area in the middle, so the fire, the coals, would be kindled underneath the grate, and the animal would be placed on the grate, kind of like a modern-day grill. And the animal will be placed on there and consumed. Now, how the animal is placed on there, what type of an animal, and what is consumed is all detailed out in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, which we'll get into. So, But you put your animal on that, and by putting it through the flames, which symbolizes judgment, on the bronze altar, which symbolizes judgment, then you're basically putting this animal under the judgment of God's wrath instead of you being placed under the judgment of God's wrath. The reason there's four horns is because in the ancient world, horns are symbolic of authority or divinity. And so basically the horns are communicating that this altar has the divine authority to remove the guilt of your sin. This is why, like, and a lot of times in the ancient world, if you see coins of Alexander the Great or Antiochus IV, different different emperors, even Caesar Augustus, You'll see coins of them, and some of their coins, they actually have ram horns coming off the sides of their head. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird. (laughs) But the ram's horn represents that they have divine authority over their empire or their nation. If you've ever seen that really famous statue of Moses, and he's got horns, and you're like, okay, that's kind of creepy. Well, they're trying to say that Moses is kind of like divine-like. And that's why, like, some characters and movies and the devil, um, our stereotypical picture of the devil as a fawn or um, pan or um, um, Saronis, um, half goat, half man, he has horns, which represents divinity. And so this means it has the divine authority to remove sin. Now, the first thing you must understand about the altar is that it's removing your guilt of sin. So basically what the altar is saying is that you are guilty of sin and the punishment for sin is death. But by taking an innocent animal, which will be discussed more in Leviticus, 
and placing it on the altar, that animal is dying in your place, so that now a judge, Yahweh, has declared you not guilty. Now, he's not declaring you not guilty every single time you come to the altar. He's declaring you not guilty by the fact that Leviticus tells you if you do this, you're going to be automatically declared not guilty. And so this is declaring you not guilty. This is not taking away your sin. It is not removing your sin. It is not cleansing you of your sin. It is literally and only just declaring you not guilty. You don't deserve to be punished. You're still defiled. You're still tainted. You're still perverted by your sin. It still clings to you in a Macbeth kind of a sense. But you are no longer under the wrath or the judgment of God's wrath. And so that's all the bronze altar does. Now, how does Christ fulfill this? The cross. The cross is basically the way, because basically Christ becomes our substitutionary perfect sacrifice, and he lays himself on the cross in a form of judgment. And he is then judged on the cross and condemned to death on our behalf. Now, the first testament makes it very clear that the blood of goats and bulls and lambs and sheep and rams and all that kind of stuff cannot remove your sins. Because an animal cannot take away the sins of a human. Because one, an animal is not a good representation of you. We know that. That's why animals don't sit on juries during jury duty and convict us. And so animals didn't sin. They can't represent your sin. And the fact that you have to continually offer an animal sacrifice over and over and over again, like the book of Hebrews says, means that if an animal could really take away your sins, then why did you have to offer another one up? And then second, an animal has no eternal value. Or third, an animal has no eternal value. But by Christ being a human, he could represent your sins. By being the eternal God, his blood could actually take away your sins, and he could eternally take them away for all eternity. And I know that's redundant, but that's intentional. The reality is he then goes through the judgment, fire, bronze, on your behalf. But you must understand something too. Christ does not cleanse you of your sins. His death on the cross does not cleanse your sins. Now, I'm not saying Christ doesn't cleanse you. We're just not there yet. But his death on the cross does not actually take away your sins. It does not cleanse you. His death just allows God to declare you not guilty. Okay, You are no longer condemned. Romans says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you're still a sinner. You're still defiled, you're still impure, and you're still defiling yourself every single day with your sin. So that actual dying on the cross just appeases the wrath of God and allows you to no longer be condemned eternally for your sins. Now, once again, keep listening, because I'm not saying that you're not cleansed at all, I'm just saying we're not there yet. We have to understand the technicalities of everything that God is doing, because it helps you appreciate a lot more of what he's doing. So that's the bronze altar. That's the first thing you encounter. So that brings us to the courtyard. The courtyard, in chapter 27, verse 9, is the barrier around you. So once again, the only way you can get into the courtyard is through the gate within part of the Abrahamic covenant and an animal sacrifice. The courtyard is this white fence that goes around the tabernacle. 
The only people who are allowed inside here is those who are part of the Abrahamic covenant and those who came in through the gate with an animal sacrifice. The courtyard is a white fence, which white represents righteousness or purity. So what becomes the barrier between you and God? Purity, righteousness. So all those who are impure are not allowed in. Now here's the thing. The priest later, when we get to numbers, are going to be given permission to kill anybody that comes into the through the tabernacle gate without any kind of purification sacrifice. So God takes this purity so seriously, and we'll get into this Leviticus. He takes the purity of his house, so to speak, his dwelling with his community so seriously that one who chooses to enter into it with defilement is immediately executed by the priests. Now, technically, we're all entering in with defilement because the altar and the wash basin are in it. But if you have no intention of coming into the courtyard with an animal sacrifice to remove your defilement, then you're, you're killed. And when we get to book, the end of Numbers, you're going to see an incident of that, of people who walk in with no intention of sacrifice, and they defile it, and the priests put them down for it. And God actually praises them for that. So God takes this seriously. So the white gate represents the purity and the righteousness that is keeping you from entering God's presence because you are not righteous and you're not pure. It is held up with these bronze posts. The bronze represents judgment. So basically, if you cross this barrier as an unrighteous, impure person, you're under the judgment of God. But here's where it gets cool. There are these square blocks that the bronze posts are set into. So bronze posts won't just stay up on their own. So there's these really heavy silver blocks that you set the post in, and the weight of the silver block holds the post up, and then the curtain is held onto that, and then there's stakes. Silver represents redemption. So basically what God is communicating with this is the white gate of righteousness is the barrier between you and God, but crossing the barrier brings judgment, but that judgment is rooted in redemption, God's redemption which means somewhere God is communicating that the only way you can cross this barrier of righteousness is if you're redeemed from the judgment of God. And of course, the only way you can be redeemed is an animal sacrifice. So all of this would be a powerful lesson. Now you have to remember that for them, these colors, would, they would automatically know what they mean. This, I mean, God is the master communicator. And everything that he's building is something they already understand. Because you have to understand something, that Israel is not the first people to have a tabernacle. Lots of other cultures had tabernacles. And it doesn't mean that God is copying from them, because a lot of people today will say, oh, Christianity and Judaism is not original. God was ripping that off of other people, like a copyright violation or something like that. Or he's sampling from music and other people's artists. Okay, And so they say, look, there you go. All your religions are exactly the same. Well, no, 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 no. Just because I'm using a lot of the same words and symbols doesn't mean I'm copying from everybody. It's just that's the language you guys speak. I'm not a good communicator if I come in here and start speaking Russian to you. Okay? And it's not like, oh, you're using English to communicate us. You're such a copycat of the American culture. No, because that's what you speak. So that's what I'm going to use to communicate. And I don't know Russian. But the reality is what God is doing is he's using the language of the culture to communicate something. You have to understand, we're talking about a literate culture. 
Most of these people, after he writes the Bible, are not going to be able to ever read the Bible. They'll be able to memorize it and recite it, but what is a more powerful illustration is physical, tangible images. This is one of the things we've lost in our Reformation of the Catholic Church, is we left a lot of amazing symbology and art and metaphors behind that could communicate. I mean, a picture paints a thousand words. And unfortunately, we went pretty sterile in our Reformation and our ability to communicate to a lot of people beautiful imagery, the amazing artistic abilities that God has given us to communicate who he is. And when we get later, we're going to find out that he's going to recruit some of the greatest artists, and he's going to put his spirit upon them, which typically only comes on priests and kings and prophets, but he gives it to the artists to build a picture, a metaphor of who he is. So yes, he's using a lot of the same symbology that that culture has already seen other places, but he's also doing it drastically different and combining it in different ways to communicate a different message. The problem is not that he's using the same language or imagery. It's because he's using the imagery to communicate a different message. Just like I may be using the English language just like an atheist, but I'm communicating a completely different message than an atheist is communicating about the world. And that's all God's doing. That's why it's very important for you to understand how the culture is using it, to understand how God is radically changing the way. And we will talk about that a little bit at the end of this. So this is the courtyard that God has set up as a barrier. The gate is the only access to God. The gate looks a lot like um, the veil. And this picture has a lot of red in it, but that's not accurate. It's actually mostly blue and mostly purple, just like the veil. This is the one picture that's not very accurate. All these pictures are actually pretty amazing. They actually come from the ESV Bible. It's like the best diagrams and pictures I've ever found anywhere. And yes, I got their permission to use these. So, um, so I got a letter to prove it. So it is the only access to God. And so what God is communicating is there is no other access, literally. You can't come in from the side. You can't come in from the back. There's no such thing as parachuting, so you can't come in from the top. The gate is high enough that you're not going to jump it. And so the reality is this is the only way into God. And in the front of it is stitched two cherubim that are just like the cherubim that guarded the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And so you're only allowed through here, through with a, once again, a member of the Abrahamic Covenant, and an animal sacrifice. Now, how did Christ fulfill this? Once again, Christ actually didn't fulfill the courtyard totally, and only in the fact that he became our redemption and our righteousness on our behalf. But he did fulfill the gate when he says, I am the gate, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And they would have known exactly what he meant. And what's interesting is Christ is using a double entendre because he's not only referring to the tabernacle gate, but he's referring to the sheep pen gate that was very common in that time period where you bring all the sheep into the gate for protection. And what's interesting is a lot of shepherds would close the gate, but they would become the body that barricaded the gate and they would block it or protect the sheep from it. And so in this way, God, Christ is saying, not only am I the gate, meaning the only way you can come into God is through me, but I'm also the animal sacrifice that allows you to get in, and I'm also your protector and your provider as a shepherd. And so that's how he fulfills that. 
I hope you're understanding that. The more and more you see this, and the more and more you understand that Christ isn't just randomly like picking things, and they're all tying back into this, this is why it's so powerful when Christ says to the Jews, if you really knew the Father, you would know me. Like, come on. How many references do I have to make before you get, like, this is not coincidence. There's an intentionality here. At the end of chapter 27 is the offering of the oil. So God basically prescribes the oil, and this oil is a, the foundational ingredient, or the base ingredient, ingredient is olive oil. And olive oil is a long refining process, and it would be extra virgin for them because there's no such thing as process, um, um, chemicals and all that kind of stuff, preservatives. And so they would use that oil. That oil was used for mainly three reasons. Um, one to keep the, and it was all different, like when the first squeezing, you would put all these olives in a bag or a sack, and you would, um, first you would crush them under a grindstone, and then you would throw them, and so whatever you got out of the grindstone that would flow out, that was your really pure olive oil. And that would be used for really religious things like anointing people. So the main thing that that was used for was healing people, rubbing on people, anointing them as a king, priest, or prophet, something like that. And then you would crush the pulp even more, and a thicker, less quality olive oil would come out of that thing. And that would be more for like baking. So they would then use that to be placed into the bread as an offering to God, which we're going to talk about in Leviticus. And then you would crush it again, and you would get even a thicker, even lower quality olive oil. And that was what you would use to be put in the candle stand, the lamp, and you would burn that as a light to God. Now, there was other squeezings and other process, but those are the three main ways that they would use the olive oil and the tabernacle and through the sacrificial system. So God basically commands them that this is the oil they're supposed to use, and then he gives them ingredients of how to make it holy and special. Like this ingredient, this recipe, can only be used for the things of God, period. It's sacred, it's holy. We have no idea what that recipe is. It's been completely lost, um, which really bothers the Jews today because if they ever rebuild the temple, we don't have the exact ingredient list that God has given us. He kind of gives us some things here and there, but we don't even know what they are and the other things are missing because probably it was a lot of things that they just kind of understood.